0: Welcome to episode number 44 of the EAE podcast. My name is Laura Rumbly. I'm the Associate Director for Knowledge Development and Research at the EAE, and our focus today is on nothing less than the future of higher education at a global level. So why this topic and why now? Well, in late May of this year, UNESCO convened its third-ever World Higher Education Conference, building on previous iterations of this same event in 1998 and 2009. In 2022, the gathering worked to convene all manner of actors with a stake in higher education to focus on, and I'm quoting here, reshaping ideas and practices in higher education to ensure sustainable development for the planet and humanity. To get a sense of what came out of these discussions and some of the key characteristics of the roadmap work that continues to be underway in terms of shaping the future, we turned to Francesc Pedro. Dr. Pedro is director of the UNESCO Institute for Higher Education in Latin America and the Caribbean. Prior to taking up his current role in 2019, he led UNESCO's education policy team in Paris, and among various academic roles he's had in his native Catalonia, he's also served as senior policy analyst at the OECD Center for Educational Research and Innovation. I began by asking Dr. Pedro what he saw as some of the most important ways that higher education around the world has changed over the last 20 years since UNESCO convened its first world conference on this subject.
1: Yeah, very difficult to to answer because I think that depending on where you are and what is your specific position uh, in in higher education, you will see things evolving differently. But uh, let me say a couple of things that are related to the uh, natural development, so to say, of the provision of higher education. And then two more that I can see as policy developments particularly in light of the discussions we had in Barcelona last month. Now, if I had to highlight two, I mean, of course, there are many things that have been, you know, uh, happening over the past 10 years or 20 years. But uh, if I had to highlight just two, I would probably refer to the increased use of technology, which uh, has changed the methodologies that we use uh, for uh, teaching and learning as well, in higher education. I think that hybridization was there even before the pandemic started. So I think, and particularly in European universities, in North American universities, the experience of being a student in higher education was already filled with lots of applications developed by universities, some others, commercial uh, applications as well, that provide um, this 24-7 experience of being a student in higher education. So that's one thing. Following the pandemic, I think that technology has contributed to the explosion of the provision of distance higher education. And we are seeing that. I mean, there was already a trend according to which the uh, already existing dedicated uh, universities to distance education are now surrounded by a plethora of uh, traditional universities. I would say that I don't know any university in middle-income countries that does not have at least a foot into distance higher education well before the pandemic, okay? So I would say that technology is now a permanent feature of the provision of higher education, taking different forms and certainly providing us with a number of questions about how much our teachers, our instructors, as well as our own students are capable of dealing with the wonderful possibilities and also the risks uh, attached to technology. So that's for sure, number one. And number two, which I think is going to be maybe even more appealing to the audience, is internationalization.
0: Yes, definitely a topic close to our hearts here at the EAE.
1: I think that there, is, there has been a dramatic increase Probably stopped because of the pandemic. But now we are seeing again that things are are returning, probably to where we were already in 2019. So I think that the internationalization has become probably part of the experience of uh, becoming a student in higher education in European countries and also for an elite of the students elsewhere. And that includes, for instance, the region where I am based in Latin America and the Caribbean where less than 1.2% of all higher education students benefit from some form of international mobility. So in a way, internationalization, which goes beyond, so to say, student mobility has increased. I think that the impulse that the European Commission has given to that within the boundaries of Europe has been impressive, and many other regions, probably all of them, are looking at the European development as an example to follow, because it also speaks of regional integration, which is also very important. So I think that on the one hand, we see technology. On the other hand, we see internationalization, for which I think student mobility is just one indicator. Not necessarily the best one, but certainly a very important one, which tells us a lot about the existing elitism around international student mobility. I promise also to supplement these two (laughs) features with uh, a couple of reflections on the policy side uh, stemming from what we discussed in Barcelona. And I think that something new that emerged in the uh, Third World Conference was the global consideration of the provision of higher education being the access to public good. And that's very important because what it follows from the consideration of higher education as a public good is that universal access should be granted. And I think that that's really a motto that UNESCO is going to use in its own agenda for the upcoming decade. So the right to higher education for all. I think that these two considerations that come probably as the two faces of the same coin, you know, on the one hand, higher education being a public good, no matter who provides it. And second, it follows from that, and it goes with that, that everyone should have access, which is different from saying that everyone has to get a degree. That's a different thing, right? But at least the capability of getting into higher education should be considered as part of the universal right to education. There is no particular reason why higher education should be excluded from the universal right to education. I'm not sure if that's agreeable by everyone, but I think that that comes as a result of our discussions in Barcelona
0: extremely interesting and powerful message. And of course, then the the question becomes implementation, you know, and how does that look in different societies, which will take us another decade or more, I'm sure to sort out. And that actually leads me to a question about the future. You know, you've already mentioned some of this powerful Uh, some of the powerful insights that have come out of the World Conference, laying the groundwork, I think, for a new era of higher education was an objective of that conference. And I know in that same spirit, UNESCO ESLK recently launched a project called Futures of Higher Education. I wonder if you could talk about what that involves and what the objectives are of that initiative.
1: Yes, I think that I would first recommend the audience to dig into the report because I think that it's, I mean, I cannot explore with the due details such a wonderful work that we have embarked in over the past more than one year internationally. But uh, let me just flag out some ideas that I think are important to consider. Probably the most important one is that we shouldn't talk about the future in singular of higher education. I think that what we wanted to promote is this idea that we should talk about possible futures of higher education, and then you know, recognize that what counts here is not our ability to make sure that we are pointing to the right future. So when we look back in 10 years, 20 or 30 years from now, we look back and we could say, Oh yes, ESL was right. So the future they design is the one that has been now installed as our present. I don't think that this is the most important aspect of our work. I think that what we wanted to promote is this idea that unless we devote enough time to reflect and discuss about the possible futures of higher education those futures are going to happen without us having a stake it you know so i think that for us it is as important as you know designing a nice future a better future for higher education to embark everyone in the process of discussing what or how these possible futures could look like. And we have designed several possible scenarios. I mean, everyone can pick, you know, the ones that uh, she would like to avoid or rather she would prefer, you know, to see really happening in reality. But I think that the most important thing here, and that explains why our work is now leading towards creating tools for helping institutions as well as groups of actors to really engage in that Uh, discussion about the futures of higher education. So it's not so much how is the future going to look like, because no one knows, but it's rather about reflecting about our future, considering how difficult is already our present, you know, and trying to see if we could really start from scratch, what things would change dramatically, how higher education would look like if we could really redesign it from scratch. It's a collection of possible futures where everyone should be comfortable with. But I think that what matters here is that we should take the time really to sit down and discuss, reflect, and really it's a way of, you know, start working towards the most interesting future for all of us. And I think that that's really what matters from this exercise. So not surprisingly, this is leading towards a series of tools that we are going to promote They are going to be launched in a couple of weeks, I think. Uh, So um, uh, several tools that uh, would allow different groups of actors to consider regularly how is higher education evolving and how far it is departing from that desirable future that they had in mind.
0: I think in a world of many, many choices, sometimes many of us crave one option you know, and one one particular vision of the future, some simple, elegant solution. But I think it's so interesting to hear you talk about the multiplicity of ideas and possibilities that you're dealing with in that project. And specifically to that point of a plurality of voices or visions, I wonder if in the work that you've done so far in this project, are there any particular synergies that seem to be resonating with a lot of people or or particular areas of significant difference and misalignment that really stand out when we think about these different futures? And what are some of our thoughts about how we can bring these together into something of a common vision that we might all buy into in some way?
1: Yeah, once again, because of the time, I'm going to elaborate only on two elements. One is the importance of openness. And I think that this is really something That goes against a growing trend in higher education worldwide, which is about, you know, the commodification of higher education and also of research outputs. I think that that's really something that everyone seems to be, well, maybe the industry (laughs) is not so so happy with this, probably. But I would say that even some, for instance, technology providers have uh, gone increasingly towards openness. Uh, UNESCO, in particular, has been promoting open science and open knowledge, and what follows from that is this future higher education provision, which is openly open, okay? I think that that's, that's a very powerful idea, and that would not only mean that every piece of content, every piece of knowledge should be available to everyone irrespective of the prior diplomas or certificates that one may be required to have to enter higher education. So that's one thing. But also, I think that openness comes with this idea of recognizing that we should be more flexible about ways of getting access into higher education, including not only opening the doors, but also providing new forms of certification like micro-credentials that could help the people that would easily find difficult to stop working or simply changing their current status, just find the exact piece of knowledge and capacity development that they may need or they may wish to have. It's not just a matter of responding to the market needs, so to say, but rather also responding to the needs of one's own development, so to say. You know, no matter if you could be working as a mechanical engineer and then bringing about uh, knowing more about classical Greek poetry. I don't know, you know. And why should we stop you from doing that? Or maybe you never got into higher education. Why we shouldn't stop you from getting there? So I think that flexibility... Is not only about modes of provision, it's not only about saying, okay, so you can go to campus or or you can follow this same course uh, using a technology platform. It's also about helping people who lack maybe credentials to get access to higher education because there is something for everyone. And remember that, as we usually say in the UN, we shouldn't leave no one behind. So I think that that comes also for higher education. So I think that. Openness and flexibility are probably two of the most important features that we would like to see, you know, and it looks like these two generate a lot of consensus. There are other concepts that are not so, I would say, acclaimed as being the result of consensus.
0: Could you perhaps give us an example?
1: The involvement of corporations into the provision of higher education. You know, when we talk about micro-credentials, Immediately, it comes to our minds, the idea of of, uh, several companies, worldwide companies uh, that are already providing higher education credentials, so to say, uh, without any other interest than making sure that they create the capacities that they need for their own development, which is, you know, in a way, uh, very different from the future that we at UNESCO are promoting, which is a future where higher education is far more than serving the needs of the labor markets, which it has to probably, but higher education is a way of expanding humanity. I think that not only groups, not only people who have been underserved, but also individuals who over the course of their life, I mean, just following this pattern of lifelong learning are willing to return to higher education and maybe just, just for one week. And maybe in five years from now, they are going to come back. Who knows? So I think that uh, openness and flexibility are probably two of the most important concepts generating that almost universal consensus.
0: So really interesting to think about those and how the Futures of Higher Education project that you've been leading is feeding into a consideration of the future in a particular way and supporting UNESCO's work in this area out of this recent World Conference on Higher Education, we have seen a roadmap emerge um, with a vision toward 2030. In the time that remains to us, I wonder if you could talk us briefly through some of the main stages of that proposed action plan and some of the immediate steps that we might be on the lookout for in the next couple of years as uh, UNESCO articulates this vision for a future, anyway, to the end of this decade.
1: Okay, well, let me first share with you A couple of ideas regarding the process, because what we launched in Barcelona is just the initial, the preliminary draft of this uh, roadmap. And what we are now promoting is a process by which different stakeholders, uh, governments, institutions, student organizations, networks of universities, uh, professional associations as yours, could really help us to have a better, a a more refined and fine-tuned roadmap for higher education for the next decade. So this process is going to be open until the end of September. I know that for European professionals, it is very bad timing because it really coincides with the summer vacation. But that's the way it is. And there is a powerful reason for that. That being that in November, the roadmap will be presented at the upcoming SDG4, Sustainable Development Goal number 4, which is about education, global meeting, where we are going to really connect, link the roadmap with the development of SDG4 until 2030. So I think that that's very important. We also suggested that in five years from now, we would like to meet again and review how far we have gone with this roadmap You know, because there are still many open questions about the changes that higher education will undergo as a result of the pandemic. You know, we started talking about technology, how much of the technological changes that we have seen over the past two years are going to remain. We have talked about internationalization and inevitably one tends to think that virtual mobility will be on the rise. But who knows, right? So it would be good to have this kind of Barcelona plus five review. That's one thing. But second, I mean, in the roadmap, we have mentioned six different transitions. I'm not going to elaborate on on each of them, but certainly one of the most important, maybe two of the two of the most important transitions that we would like to see happening in this uh, upcoming decade are one about moving from higher education provision, which is exclusive for several groups of individuals and challenge the idea of merit. I think that this probably would require us to have a second conversation on the implications of that, you know, sometime in the future. And so from that exclusive provision that tends to say to many people, no, you are not called for this. Uh, You are not really up to the requirements. Uh, We don't care about your past or your background. It's simply that you are not really qualified for this to an inclusive uh, provision, which, as I said at the beginning, speaks to everyone. So everyone should be, irrespective of background and the qualifications, should be able to find something in higher education that speaks to him or to her as an individual or as a member of a group. That's one of the most important transitions. And the second one is, I mean, that is going to be even more difficult is the transition from having disciplinary approach to our higher education programs where we still try to reproduce the way in which different disciplines have evolved over time, you know, and we start the first year with our students, we settle the foundations and then evolve and then, you know, generate like the different branches. We try to reproduce in the um, education of our students the same pathways that the disciplines follow. But we think that our students today, well, maybe already 10 years ago, I mean, are far more prone to look at things, not from the perspective of a discipline, but rather from the perspective of what's the problem.
0: So would you like to see more problem-based teaching?
1: Let me give you an example, which I think maybe is not going to be very popular, but say, look at how economy has been taught over the past uh, century or so in universities. You you start by looking at the rules of the market, supply, demand. Okay, well, this is still the science of economics, right? And we are not going to change that or challenge that. Others are going to do it, certainly. But um, is this really appealing to our students? Or rather, we better start talking about the implications of inequalities and take them, because this is something that really interests a number of our students nowadays, you know, why we are unequal, right? Or how is that that uh, our model of development is not sustainable? Okay, let's start by looking at that. And once you start talking about inequalities or sustainability, just following the example of economics programs, right? um, You will discover that the science of economics is not enough to respond to those questions, right? You need a bit of history. You need probably a bit of mathematics. You need probably some considerations about environmental sciences. Well, I don't know, but so I think that the second transition is the one moving from disciplinary approaches to transdisciplinary approaches, right? So instead of talking about a problem in history, Let's talk about the issues that we have with war. right? War is really a problem, and we are suffering from this problem. Okay, So let's look at war from a multidisciplinary, or if you prefer, transdisciplinary perspective. That kind of transition is going to be, as I said, <laughs> even more difficult, who knows, <laughs> from, yeah. uh, than the one I mentioned from an, an exclusive to an inclusive system. Sorry for being so passionate. About this, but I think that I, it's just an invitation to to your audience to read by themselves and challenge, you know, the the roadmap.
0: No, I think the the passion that you're bringing to the conversation is one that is very much shared by our community. And you've given us such an interesting set of ideas and considerations to mull over, um, not only in terms of what's happening right now, but what may be coming down the line as we think about the future of our field. So I can't thank you enough, uh, Dr. Pedro, for taking the time to speak with us. We really, really appreciate it.
1: Thank you very much. It has been really a pleasure. And I'm committed to continue this conversation maybe sometime in the future. Thank you Fantastic. very much. for Thank you. opportunity. Thank
0: you. That was Francesc Pedro, director of the UNESCO Institute for Higher Education in Latin America and the Caribbean. If you're interested in learning more about UNESCO's work, please check out our session notes for some relevant links. While this episode has focused on some longer term planning in the world of higher education, at the EAE we're also very excited about what's in store in the short term. And of course, I'm talking about this year's annual EAE conference and exhibition. This event in September will bring together high-level experts, hardworking professionals, and really the full range of the international higher education community for four days of knowledge sharing, networking, and a healthy dose of inspiration. We have more than 200 activities lined up for you, including workshops, networking events, and campus tours that you can also add to your registration. The early bird discount ends June 29th, so we encourage you to act now to save on your registration fee. We're also acting now to keep the conversations flowing here in the EAE podcast series. Our next episode will post in two weeks' time. Thank you for listening, and all good wishes to you from the EAE.